Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, You know how every week uh, I start with, hey, everybody, we've got a great one for a change. And then it turns out to be a particularly lame and uh, boring show. I've been getting some complaints about that. And the other day, I was uh, I was out for a walk. I was wearing my mask. And a guy stops me and starts complaining. Why do you always say the show's going to be great for a change and the show turns out to be just as crappy as the last one? And that's when I realized I should record the intro after I've done the interview because before I record them, the intention always is to have a great one. So today I can guarantee you we've got a great one with Lori Garrett, the Pulitzer Prize winner for writing on infectious diseases, and Andy Slavitt, the former head of Medicare and Medicaid under Barack Obama, who I think you'll agree, Barack Obama was a much better president than the current one, who, if you ask me, is is a nut, is crazy. Anyway, Andy is a fellow Minnesotan and a friend and host of In the Bubble, a podcast from his bubble in his home in Edina, Minnesota. And I can tell you, This one, this is a great one. Not because I've already recorded it, I haven't, but Lori and Andy uh, did one a few months ago that was a great one. And in fact, I think, in all honesty, the only great one I've ever done. And that was about the vaccine. And I have to say that that interview was scary because at the time, it looked like the Trump administration was going to announce a vaccine right before the election as, as kind of a political stunt. And that Democrats wouldn't trust it and not take it, defeating the whole purpose of, of vaccinations. And alternatively, if the vaccine didn't get announced till after Biden took office, then the Trump people wouldn't trust it. So that was kind of a scary podcast, but a great one. Well, it turns out the vaccine was announced after the election. So Democrats could trust it because it wasn't a political stunt. But Trump could take credit for it because of Operation Warp Speed, which you have to admit is a great name, Warp Speed which, by the way, the single best special effect I've ever seen. It's just a simple visual effect, really. The stars just start coming at you in in this effect, uh, which means the Millennium Falcon is just is like approaching the speed of light, which to me actually seems dangerous. I mean, you hit an asteroid or just even a little small meteor at that speed, you you better have some, you know, pretty damn good airbags. But it's a movie. It's a movie. So great name for the vaccine program. And, you know, the idea that we have a once in a century pandemic, let's try to come up with a vaccine as fast as possible. That, That really doesn't count as an idea, does it? But the name was a stroke of genius. And you know who came up with it? Barron. Turns out Barron had the best idea of the whole administration. So anyway, I wanted to get Lori and Andy for Thanksgiving. Okay, a couple, uh, just a couple things about, uh, I am so angry at uh, my former colleagues 
in a sense, Republican colleagues who finally, finally, finally today, Romney said something as if he couldn't have said something. (laughs) My God. But none of them are saying anything, and they're they're undermining people's confidence in our entire system. And this is doing incredible damage. And what are they doing during this period? They're just confirming more judges. They confirmed a 33-year-old who had no trial experience for a lifetime appointment instead of having a, a COVID relief package for people who are getting evicted and don't have food. I mean, it, my daughter works for the D.C. public school system, and she's been working on something that I'm so proud of her about, which is she got 25 buildings, and this is, man, this is a lot of work, and staffing this for kids who are, they're English language learners, their moms are, in many cases, immigrants who can't work because they have a kid at home who has no internet, and they need to work. And so my daughter, working with a lot of other People have got them so that these kids can go to go to school. Now, the, the teachers' union, they can't have teachers, so my daughter had to get volunteers to do this. These kids get Zoom there at the school. They can see each other. They socially distance, wear masks. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that my daughter is doing, and I'm so, so proud of her. And... My former colleagues are doing nothing. And this is so damaging for the Biden team not to be able to to work with the folks in the Trump administration for this transition because we are spiking and people are dying. And so much damage has been done by this man. I saw... CNN interview with a nurse in South Dakota who had patients dying of COVID who were denying that they had COVID because the president told them it wasn't really real. This is just tragic and awful. Anyway, so I wanted to get uh, Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt on for this, this podcast, which will drop before Thanksgiving. Uh, It's really important that people not spread this during the Thanksgiving uh, holiday. I think you're going to agree that this is a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. 
After we did the last one, Lori, Andy and I talked, and the first thing he said was, she just scared the heck out of me. Do you remember what it was about uh, the vaccine? And basically, I think we had come to the conclusion if the vaccine came out before the election, Biden people wouldn't trust it. And then if it came out after, the Trump people wouldn't trust it. Do you remember that conversation, Lori? Yes, I do. I've known Andy for a while. I've never heard him quite like that. He was a little frightened. So now, and I've been watching you on MSNBC, you're you're a treasure, Lori. Andy, you're okay, too. You're good. You're a good guy. <laughs> um, but Lori, my theory is, is that you're one of the first people should get the vaccine because we need you, you know. Uh, but I heard you, I think it was just last night or something, uh, say something about uh, we don't really have the data on either of these vaccines. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, I, and tell me if this is just wrongheaded, but my immediate thought was, well, it came out after the election. Therefore, I trust it. It wasn't rushed out and <laughs> announced before November 3rd. If they had done that, of course, of course, of course, that would have been very suspicious. But since it came out after, and I know that Trump is really pissed, right, that it came out after, but does that at all make you feel more comfortable with this, Lori? So, Al, I would step back and look at it a slightly different way. Let's, let's, let's start this way. First of all, we have a completely out-of-control epidemic across all 50 states, with the highest surges and per capita death tolls in the 376 counties that ranked uh, as Trump voting counties and that have among the lowest adherence rates to masks and social distancing. And so we have a situation where you can call it cause and effect or you could say it's just correlation. But either way you look at it, uh, there's a true and devastating disconnect between the sort of popular conception of a personal risk and actions, social behavior, duty to your fellow citizen, et cetera, and the danger around them, the filled hospital wards, the refrigerator morgue trucks lined up along the streets. So step one is we have basically a, a, a devastating situation across America that could be addressed with proper behavioral change and social distancing, but it's in precisely the population groups that refuse to go along with uh, such uh, activities because they see it as somehow a conspiracy, a uh, oppressive, anti-libertarian, anti-freedom set of exercises. So that puts us in a situation which is clearly seen by Wall Street because of the Wall Street euphoria around every single vaccine announcement. It puts us in a situation where we're trying to desperately cling to a fragile bridge of public health activity that will get us over the hump to whenever it is we actually do mass distribution of an effective vaccine. And so we're all kind of clinging to this timeline that could be anywhere from three or four months from now to six or seven months from now, depending on what pans out with the various vaccines that are in the pipeline right now and the FDA process, the CDC process, and the transition between uh, Trump and Biden. So that takes us to your question, which is, you know, do we trust the vaccine and do we trust the process? And where we are now is we have two vaccines, uh, one from Pfizer announced last week and one, one from Moderna announced this week that both utilize the same revolutionary method of immunization that's never been used before in any human being or frankly, even in livestock uh, in the history of planet Earth. It involves the injection of genetic material in the form of mRNA that is enclosed inside of little fatty beads. The little microscopic fatty beads are suspended in a solution and injected into your arm muscle and then disperse across the body uh, where the little fatty beads are absorbed inside of cells in your body and those cells turn into factories making the material, the protein that is coded for in that mRNA. And that material happens to be the spike proteins that are on the outside of the coronaviruses. 
So the idea is that your own body starts making these proteins so that the rest of your body, the immune system, will recognize it and make antibodies and fight against it. So those two new vaccines are announced, but all we have as far as data to tell us, do they work? Are they safe? Uh, is this revolutionary technology the solution to our problems right now? All we have is two press releases. The press releases were posted on the internet by the companies, and the CEOs of the companies uh, did big cash outs on the stock markets the day that they posted their respective press releases and became very, very wealthy men. So there's a lot to chew on there and a lot to ask yourself, gee whiz, do I trust all this? Now, most of the scientists that I know that are very close to this whole vaccine development process are actually quite excited. They think that, yeah, it's only press releases, but nobody expected us to get above 90% efficacy. One of them claims 95%. And we were hoping, praying that we might get 50% efficacy. So this is very good news. Well, there are more than 200 other vaccine candidates in the pipeline. Any one of them might turn out to be far superior. There are problems with these mRNA ones that may not be inherent in other types of vaccines that are based on different types of technology. And all of it requires that the FDA have uh, extraordinary scientific expertise and be allowed to really sink their teeth into all the data that the companies have. Uh, in order to decide, should these guys get an emergency use authorization? So now that takes you to your question, Al, because now the problem is today at the FDA, all the leadership is Trump appointed. In a few weeks at the FDA, the leadership will be Biden appointed. There may be very significant differences in how the data would be analyzed and interpreted and what would be the criteria for approval um, between the two administrations. And certainly it's unconscionable that we would go forward without allowing the Biden teams in the room. So we could very well have, and we can already see it playing out at the CDC level as well in terms of implementation of a vaccine program, we could very well have a whole set of things written stone, billions of dollars worth of commitments made, mass purchasing of vaccines. And, you know, the Biden people come in on January 20th, get finally get a good hard look at all the data and all the schemes and say, what? Now, Andy, are you are you as scared this time as you were last time? You know, I I love Lori. I'm a far bit more optimistic than she is, I think, on this one. Uh, although I think there's nothing she said that isn't 100% correct. You know, I have been talking to the career civil servants uh, at the FDA. Um, I think after a period of time when the FDA clearly uh, was buckling under under Trump, um, Stephen Hahn got called out by the scientific community. He's the, he's the commissioner of the FDA and pushed back hard and increased the standards for the, for the vaccines. So I don't doubt that this is going to get a very rigorous look. Uh, the data that's been released um, so far is not complete. There's still some safety data we need to see, but it is overwhelmingly positive, more so than uh, anybody expected. And the reason that's important is not for those specific two vaccines. The reason it's important is because until a week or two ago, we didn't know whether or not the production of antibodies from these vaccines actually prevented disease. Uh, we know that now for certain. And that is really important because what it tells us is that this bug, to put it in vernacular terms, is a relatively easy mark. It is, it's a horror show because it's a novel virus and we have no protection. But building the protection is something that is within our scientists' reach. Uh, that is fairly certain at this point. Now, there's a lot of open questions. How long do people get immunity? Do you get immunity and protection? Do you get immunity and protection and are not contagious? Does it work on people over 85? Does it work on people who are um, kids or pregnant women? There's a lot of questions to consider. 
that are still open. One question, who has seen the data? Who has seen this data? Because what Lori seemed to suggest was that uh, Pfizer and Moderna have said that this was the data, but you're saying that the FDA, the CDC, have people have, have seen it. Other people have seen it, right? Well, it's undergone an independent scientific review, but let's not turn into to the left version of QAnon here. Um, I'm just... Okay. <laughs> let, let, let's be fair. There's there's two steps here. One is that all the data has to be blinded. To do a legitimate placebo-controlled trial, it's not possible for the researchers who are administering the vaccines to know which is placebo and which is an active ingredient because then you've biased your study. So seeing the data includes unblinding a whole set of piles of data. And it's not reasonable to think that that would have been all revealed at this moment, though it should be for the actual FDA review process. But the other thing is, as far as I know, and I've called all over the place, there aren't people who have seen more data than what was either published based on the phase one and phase two trials or was in the press releases for the phase three trials for either vaccine. I want to clarify this for my lay listener. Um, what did Lori just say, for example? <laughs> exactly. I mean, clarify that for us. The point is there's legitimate reasons that you don't just know all the data on your study because in order to do it ethically and properly, certain things have to be blinded and hidden behind uh, code systems and so on so that you get unbiased results. Theoretically, some of the blinded data is probably still blinded. So if I'm at Pfizer, I may not know which of my 37 volunteers by name got a vaccine versus got a placebo. What I know is that in the arm of the study that was called the placebo arm, X number of people got COVID. And in the arm that's called the active vaccine arm of the study, Y number of people so far have gotten COVID. And the difference is profound and statistically significant and allows me to say there's a 90% protection. Okay. That's what we know. That's But that's very good, I would think. And look, there are a lot of things that Lori reviewed just now, all of which are true. But in the minds of the public, there are some things that matter more than others. Am I irritated that Pfizer's CEO sold stock the day of the announcement? Yes. Is that potentially insider trading and a matter for the SEC? Yes. Does it make any difference to me in terms of the vaccine? Not a bit. And the thing I want us to avoid doing is being guilty of creating more doubts in the minds of the public that on this vaccine, that it's not going to be properly vetted, it will be properly vetted, that the data won't be transparent, it will be transparent, that we won't know what the safety data says, we will. And that we have a very good sign. We're not there yet. Think about it this way. People say there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We, we probably have like another corner to round, and we round that corner we will be staring at the light and and there it's still possible, although very, very unlikely that something happens around that corner um, that doesn't make it the case. But there's two things that are important, I think, to communicate. One is we need large amounts of people to be willing to take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't be making people needlessly worry. And secondly, because people are exhausted, not believing um, or in a time where there's a lot of spread, um, it is helpful for people to know that they won't need to do this forever, Right. that that we will have a vaccine soon. So I don't want us to get so cautious in describing this that we're literally saying, well, who actually saw the data? Is it being doctored? There's no evidence whatsoever that company would doctor the data. Like and this. that was the issue in our discussion a couple months ago, really the one that, that frightened me and Andy, which is that if this came out before the election, there would be a lot of people on the Biden side of the equation who would not trust it. And if the vaccine uh, didn't come out till after January 20th, Trump people wouldn't trust it uh, because we need a critical mass of people to take it. Well, I, I can't emphasize that enough, and I'm still very concerned about it. I mean, my point to Andy's comment, my point in raising the stock sales of the CEOs is not 
to say there's a conspiracy there, but rather it undermines their credibility when they're trying to engender trust. It does. And, you know, it just fuels all these conspiracy thinking, all these nasty ideas. And we're going to be in a situation where, ironically, the Trump people now want to declare victory that Trump himself tweeted that it would be his legacy and that history should record that he was the man who provided the world with a vaccine. And uh, he wants to promote it, but it's actually his followers, the the Trump followers that are very generally anti-vaccine and have cast great suspicion on things. On the left, there's another whole contingent that for different reasons is anti-vaccine. You put them together and any leader, whether it's Trump, Biden, or their minions, is going to have a hard time winning over uh, the levels of population engagement that is necessary to create sufficient immunity in the American people to stop the spread of this virus once and for all. So regardless of whether it was Trump or Biden, we were going to have a real uphill battle. And I felt the battle was going to be even harder if it was perceived as a rush job before the election in order to flip some marginal people from voting potentially for Biden to voting potentially for Trump. And that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And that did not happen. And in fact, the CEO of Pfizer quite emphatically before the election said it will not happen. Mm -hmm. And after the election, Trump tweeted that the deep state, including Pfizer, had withheld the vaccine in order to hurt his reelection. Well, of course, he's going to say, I mean, let's face it. He has just been the worst actor in this whole thing in terms of not, I mean, he's the first loser in an election not to acknowledge that he lost and he's acting like Donald Trump. Let's take a, take a step back here, though. The future ex-president, he's going to claim credit for any positive thing and no accountability for anything bad. We know that that's a given. Having said that, I would like him to be championing this vaccine for the very reason that Laurie described. And doesn't he deserve some credit? I mean, doesn't he deserve some credit for warp speed? Doesn't he have a right to say we did invest the hell of a lot in this, right? I mean, look, I think he's probably lost a a lot of benefit of the doubt with most of us. (laughs) No Um, shit. Yeah. But warp speed has, look, it's not, I think Laurie's right. We should be a little bit cautious. It's not done yet. If it plays out the way that it might, you know, this is like splitting the human genome. It is. It will be one of the most successful, rapid, and by the way, not just warp speed, but I think all around the world, the development of this vaccine has the potential to be one of the greatest science scientific achievements ever. Yeah, a recent survey shows that between 2010 and 2020, uh, about 21 vaccines came before the FDA, mostly flu vaccines, for approval. The average time from vaccine initiation to final approval was eight years. And the average number of clinical trials conducted before approval were seven. We're looking at every one of these is a 10 to 11 month process, not eight year process. And most of them have two clinical trials, a phase two and a phase three. So to Andy's point, I mean, we've shoved aside decades of tradition regarding how the FDA functions, how drugs are approved, what's the nature of a trial, and you know what are the priorities. And yes, it will go down in history. And, and look, all that is by real necessity. You wouldn't make a judgment otherwise. You wouldn't go like, okay, let's, let's take the eight years. This is a global pandemic that is uh, changed everyone's lives and is killing well over a million people worldwide, 250,000 here. You wouldn't do it any other way, would you, Lori? No, of course not. Okay. But I would, what I want, What I wish I could see is genuine, open engagement in the transition teams, not just inside the FDA for the approval process, but also inside the CDC for the distribution process. For example, the Pfizer vaccine needs to be maintained at a temperature of minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more, Mm. colder. That sounds hard to do. Um, 
very hard. It requires equipment that I guarantee you the average health department does not possess. But the Moderna doesn't. So, But the Moderna is about 94 degrees warmer tolerant. So it can actually be stored in a fairly routine deep freezer. And the CEO just this week said, it's not in their written material, but he said verbally that it could actually survive at room temperature for 12 hours on a tabletop. Now, if that's all true, then if you're the governor of, say, the state of Maryland, you're going to want the Moderna vaccine because it's going to save you a hell of a lot of money in terms of not having to buy special freezers, not having to train personnel in how to handle it properly. The Pfizer looks like a nightmare. The Moderna looks almost like a normal vaccine from the point of view of a state executing its immunization process. But, you know, there there may be something even easier coming down the pipeline. We may see the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is, you know, ponying up to the front of the queue now, turn out to be a home run. And that may very well be uh, so stable that it's right up there with a routine measles vaccine. So let me ask you, can, can all these coexist at the same time? In other words, is it faster to use several of these? And, and we need them all. We need them all. We need them all. Which, yes, we do need them all. And Tony Fauci has said that, which then goes to this whole question of who's deciding how the states will execute the process, how localities will, you know, what's the role of the CDC, all that. It's, it makes it much more complicated. And it really requires, like I said over and over, like a mantra, that the transition team is inside the CDC right now. Yes. And then how much damage is being done every day by this president refusing to let the uh, Biden team in there? It's just how can he be doing this? How can anyone allow him to do this? There, there's a couple of things that are happening. And I've I've been in... in some contact with both teams, uh, and it's very frustrating that, that until the GSA uh, makes a decision, the Biden team is playing by the rules, and they're not even having off-the-record sidebar conversations with career civil servants because um, they know that they need to do this and they want to do this by the book. But there are some very valuable things that the Biden team needs to be working on, and they are working on that, but they're working on them in the in the absence of information that the Trump team has, one of those is vaccine distribution uh, and how and how that how that happens. But there there are other things that uh, that they that they want to get their hands on and need to get their hands on. Now, I would say, if there is no transition whatsoever, there's probably nobody I'd rather have taking the reins than Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. And Ron the, the new chief of staff, Ron Klain, yeah. right? Because they could they could probably put on blindfolds and walk around the West Wing and Health and Human Services um, and know exactly where they're going and get exactly what they need. And I do believe that people in the CDC and the FDA will give them a hero's welcome um, because they will let them do their jobs again. But we're losing time, and as as Laurie said, you know, between here and there, there are hundreds of thousands of lives in the balance. There's little question that Trump doesn't care about that uh, particular metric or outcome uh, as much as he does whatever point he's trying to prove to his base by continuing to, to resist reality. Let's look at day one, Joe Biden. You know, January 20 at 2 p.m., what's he doing? After he, he's shaken everybody's hands and he, the ceremony and pomp is over with, well, he's going to go through this giant pile of executive orders and start reversing them. And a lot of them do affect health, affect health policy, affect things that Andy worked on when he was in government, affect things like whether or not Trump could fire Tony Fauci on January 19th under a more recent executive order. He will then also want to immediately have sworn in, named, announced, and put in power a director for the CDC, a director for FDA, key positions that are involved in stopping this pandemic. He can't 
be in a situation such as Obama was in in 2009, which was most awkward indeed when H1N1 swine flu emerged in March of 2009, because at that time, we had no Secretary of Health and Human Services, no permanent director of the CDC, and virtually every one of the chairs at the global health table were empty because of a snafu in the would-be appointment of Tom Daschle to be right. uh, HHS secretary. That meant that we went into fighting that pandemic with uh, all temporary staff and with no written stone policies of any kind, just kind of trying to scramble to figure out what had been the Bush policies that carried over for pandemic flu. We can't allow that to be the case. I do not know firsthand, maybe Andy does, but I assume that on the top of the list, right up there with cabinet appointments, Joseph Biden is interviewing and considering CDC directors, FDA commissioners, a head for the Office of Global Health Affairs inside of HHS, and other key positions, BARDA, go down the list to make sure that he's got people in place week one to turn this ship around and to assess what's been good about the science and Operation Warp Speed and what's a mess. Now, who, who requires confirmation and who can be acting immediately? This is a great point because this goes to your Senate, Al. Um, I, I, Lori's right. There will be a HHS secretary probably named right around Thanksgiving, either right before or right after. And the next week, I expect they'll name the FDA and CDC directors. But, uh, but as, as you know, they're not permitted to fully uh, do their jobs until um, they get confirmation. And both of those need, need confirmation from... Well, CDC director doesn't, fortunately. Doesn't need confirmation? No, but FDA does and yeah. HHS does. And of course, McConnell has his starting position is that nobody's going to get approved looking beyond his obvious self-interest for the co- interest for the country. Maybe he'll see that we need to have people in place. In the meantime, Biden has a large number of people, not on this task force he announced, but, but on his transition team that are focused solely on this pandemic. Look, I, th- let me put it to you this way. We're not having a peaceful transfer of power. We're having a very unpeaceful transfer of power. We're having a deadly transfer of power. Trump can change that by picking up the phone, telling his, his head of the GSA that he concedes and that she should get going. Uh, in the meantime, you know, more bodies are going to be piling up on his watch. Isn't it negligent homicide? Sounds like it. Yeah, it is. And it is, you know, who who the hell can talk to him and say, okay, don't concede. Just let them work together. The time between now and then, as I think uh, the three of us have all been saying, it's time that really, really matters. It's clock time that really matters. Um, and I think you can imagine in 2008, when we are, we're having a financial crisis, if George W. Bush was doing this to Barack Obama and you know Tim Geithner uh, wasn't permitted to talk with, with Hank Paulson. Right. Um, Completely analogous. That's, that's a perfect analogy. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is, because had Hank Paulson refused to share and bring into the room Tim Geithner on on every single detail, we would probably have gone into 2009 in a financial crisis so severe that we would have been thinking every day, is this as bad as 1939? Fortunately, honorable men and women acted honorably, and we're not seeing that now. No, no. Okay, we're going to take a uh, break. We'll be right back with Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. 
Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let, let, let's turn for one second to Thanksgiving because uh, a lot of people are wondering what to do. Oh boy! Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I oh boy is right. That's why I bring it up because oh boy. Well, I tell you, I uh, the risk of gathering varies greatly across the country. It's mm-hmm. not a uniform risk. In a place where daily incidents, based on the percentage positive of random testing, is above eight or nine percent, as is the case, for example, in the Dakotas, it means that if you know ten or eleven folks converge on grandma's house from multiple different locations to share Thanksgiving, statistically, the odds are one of them is infected and could transmit it to everybody else at the dinner table. Really, 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 really bad idea. I talked to Deborah Burks not that long ago. She describes Thanksgiving as 120 million super spreader events. Mm -hmm. Um, And Rather than trying to figure out your geography, I'd say just ask yourself, are you comfortable with a, even a 5 to 10% chance of having a tube stuck down your throat um, or, or right. a loved one in your family? Well, let me, let me ask you what the right precaution might be if every, everyone it. is testing. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just don't travel. Don't do it. Figure out another way to show love, affection, and sharing. Feast over the Zoom or something. Just don't do it. And similarly, cancel Christmas, cancel Hanukkah, have the love, the affection, the joy, share the gifts, but don't do it in person. There just isn't a smart way. This is what the Republicans have been saying that the liberals were trying to do all along, canceling Christmas. There we are where they finally, now that the election's over, we can finally admit that that was our goal. And also there's a war on Hanukkah, what I'm hearing. Lori's exactly right. This is a one-year Zoom giving. We weren't willing to do it in Memorial Day. We weren't willing to do it Fourth of July. We weren't willing to do it Labor Day. Eventually, we're going to have to skip a holiday. Nothing. <laughs> this this well, pandemic isn't free. Look, Lori and I both would tell you that it sucks not to see your family, particularly during hard times like this. But it's one. It's one. My grandmother rode at the bottom of a boat at eight years old and lived through a 10-year depression. We could probably handle a Zoom giving. Yes, and and frankly, maybe this will make certain landmark spring events like Easter or summer events like 4th of July much, much more important to us down the road. Maybe by then we will be vaccinated. Maybe by then we will be able to safely gather. But we've got to understand that you're not showing love if you're potentially spreading a virus. That's not a loving act. That's an act of, at the very least, callous, you know, non-regard for those around you. It could be considered even worse. And there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the Sturgis motorcycle rally, unbelievably stupid, more than four hundred thousand people to this tiny town that I believe its normal population is around two thousand. And for a week on their motorcycles with no masks and heavy drinking and all sorts of fun group activities. They spread the virus and then rode their bikes back to Minnesota, to South Dakota, to um, Wisconsin, to wherever they went, Indiana and so on. And they spawned thousands of cases. Yeah. It'd be hard to think of a worse event to have at the time. Amazing. Amazing that that was allowed. Maybe maybe a Supreme Court, I'm just thinking maybe it's a Supreme Court nominee event in the White House. That could probably do it. There's a study from Stanford which says that 30,000 people have so far been infected directly and indirectly from the White House. You know what the White House has been going for is uh, herd immunity 
in the White House. I think everybody should stay away from the motorcycle rally that they're having at the White House. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really good idea. And I, you know, I also think that everybody needs to really, you know, step back and consider just how much alcohol is a disinhibitor that results in behavior that spreads virus. And it's really clear that episode after episode of super spreader events are connected to bars or to wild parties, frat parties, uh, beach parties, that sort of thing. And it's it means that well-meaning and well-intended masked individuals can arrive at eight o'clock. But after three or four hours of guzzling beer together, um, the masks have come off, the hugging has started, and everybody's kind of forgotten that they're in a pandemic. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're recognizing around the country is this tension that is between um, hormones, alcohol, and fear of virus. And it's really a driver for single adults between basically teenage years and age 30. And it's probably the main reason that, for example, in Europe, they got this huge surge after their spring holidays or summer holidays, I mean, because so many young people went from wherever their home was, say Northampton, England, down to Spain or Italy to party their brains out, have a lot of sex, have a lot of alcohol, have a good time and head home, which is their right, except it's in a pandemic. You know, I remember Fauci, I, I can't remember when this was, there was a certain point at which he, he was trying to talk sense in the people, but at the same time be diplomatic. Do you remember this thing where he was going like, I was young once too, and I understand the, the, the attraction of going to a bar, but understand that you can be non-symptomatic. <laughs> you remember that thing? <laughs> yes, and that was that was around spring break time, and he was absolutely right. I mean, look, I, I see it here in Brooklyn. I go out on my bike all the time with my mask on, of course, and as I go through key neighborhoods like Williamsburg, where the, we have a lot of young hipsters living, you know, you can almost feel the frustration and tension in the air you know, of wanting to be partying, wanting to be finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend, wanting all the giant rave parties and everything that makes living in a place like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, really cool, really like something that kids all over the world aspire to. And you can't do it right now. Yeah. And if we can just hold on, hold on, just hold on there. You know, as Andy said, we have, we still probably have a few corners to turn, which by the way, every time the president says it, I say, you turn enough corners and you're going in a circle. But anyway, <laughs> we still have more corners to turn before we're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But it, it's not a year away. It's just a few months. Everybody needs to hang in there. And then we'll, we'll go to a new stage of the battle, which involves trying to get as many people as possible to actually get vaccinated, um, having you know transparency and truth and how we all function around who's vaccinated and who isn't, but at least these policies and decisions will be made by a different government, which hopefully will be based on science. The first people to get the vaccine will be uh, healthcare workers, obviously, right? And people who work in hospitals and well, I think there's also a strong sense of priority for everyone involved in nursing homes and rest homes. Sure. And uh, for also, I guess, essential workers, right, mm -hmm. who have to be out there. The National Academy of Medicine has held a lot of hearings and published their own analysis of, how, you know, what should be the algorithm for figuring out who gets at the front of the queue, who's next and next and next. And, you know, in our society, it is a very huh, complicated and uh, racially charged and class-charged problem. Mm -hmm. You know, we always historically make innovations available to the rich and powerful first. And in this epidemic, the rich and powerful are low priority because they're showing lower rates of infection and death. And the folks that are at highest risk are, you know, the guys that are delivering your dinner to your house so that you don't have to take the risk and go outside. Right. And people at the grocery store, 
right? Working in the grocery store, driving those UPS trucks, delivering all your damned Amazon packages. Damn those packages. And of course, everybody working in the hospitals, everybody working in uh, mortuaries and, you know, graveyards and uh, EMT and on and on, you know, and even in the police departments and fire departments, everyone who's got to be outside mingling with other human beings as part of their job and we expect it of them that should be at the front of the queue. And it's going to be ultimately back to my whole point that the decision tree is going to be established through the, the CDC in cooperation with state health departments. And that process is unfolding right now under the Trump administration. Hey, Lori, what do you think of this idea? I, I think we absolutely need to to get this to elderly people and frontline healthcare workers first, for sure. But what do you think about the idea of prioritizing college kids? And what I mean by that is, you know, somewhat in the theory of ring vaccination and somewhat in the theory of cut this off at the spread, I think people whose behavior is unlikely to change and where there is a lot of spread, if we could get cut that those sources off, because look what we're, I think what we're trying to do is not just keep people safe and prevent them from dying. We're trying to reduce the circulation of the bug. And one way to do that is to basically take the things that have been, where, where this thing has been spreading and dramatically reduce that. What do you, what do you think of that idea? Well, Andy, I think that's smart, but here's the point. Developing what the criteria for your decision tree should be is politics. And influencing that is going to be, you know, if my Fortune 500 company can't get up to full operation, the economy will never recover and therefore your restaurants will never reopen and et cetera. And so that side of the argument says, you know, there are certain vital elements of the economy that need vaccination now to get back in full gear. And there will be epidemiological arguments, there will be economic, there will be racial, there will be social justice. All of this has to be balanced and thought through very carefully by the right people. And fortunately, the National Academy of Medicine started the process and has provided something of a blueprint to work with. But we don't know what criteria the Trump people are imagining right now and what they're setting down in stone. And to be clear, the allocations are going to go to states. So, yes. so you know, they'll, they'll pass criteria along and then they'll go to states and they'll give a state some lower allocation based on what's available to sort of begin that process. And so the, these are good problems to have. Once it starts happening, people need to really be patient. They can't instantly jump back into normal life. They, they should see that um, we can reduce the spread and that we are almost here. So look, the, the Biden team is going to be largely responsible um, when they get there for uh, this distribution. They've been thinking about this since at least June or July. Nothing like this can go perfectly because it's, it's a large scale issue. But um, one way or the other, by middle of the year, you have a better than 50-50 chance to have something in your arm by then. And, and the White House chief of staff, of course, will be the guy who was the czar for the, uh, during Ebola. How much do those fit together? In other words, uh, that was... I guess, a very different thing, but that was also a very different thing because <laughs> we led a global effort. Well, what's interesting about Ron Klain, for those people who don't, who don't know him, is he's not a public health expert. What he is, is somebody who can make government, private industry, science work together better, faster, and more efficiently. And in many respects, we, we, won't, we won't have the problem we have today with the Trump administration. We will have enough scientists. We will have enough experts. They will be listened to. The, the, the challenge that we'll have is how do you organize them and get them to go fast and quickly and make sure they're effective. That's what Ron Klain did during Ebola, which was a much more lethal but much less contagious uh, virus. So I think those principles and the, the principles of just simply working in an environment of stress where you've got a lot of life and death dependencies I think you want a person like Ron Klain. I think one point, and I'm sure Andy feels the same way, that I would love to to just say to your, your listeners is, look, I am sick of this epidemic. 
I am sick of being in lockdown, whether it's imposed or self-imposed. I am fed up. I want my museums. I want my concerts. I want my gang all gathered together feasting. I'm as fed up as the next person, but you've got to hang in there. You've got to find a way in your, your soul to recognize that deviating from cautious behavior, even if it feels socially isolating and stifling, is dangerous not just for yourself, but for those you love and care about. And that good citizens are mask-wearing citizens. We do have sort of two information universes, and I think folks that are listening to this have very much benefited from this discussion, and I think they'll, uh, unfortunately, they're not necessarily the folks uh, we need to communicate that to, but um, uh, what do you see in those states like South Dakota, like North Dakota, like Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota? What do you see in terms of their their public officials acting responsibly? It's interesting. I talked to Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, called mm -hmm. me the other day, Republican, obviously. They have a mask mandate. He was scared to death. And he said, look, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, they're bad, but they're manageable. Everybody's wearing a mask. He said it's the rural counties in Ohio that – uh, nobody's wearing masks, and everybody's having these house parties and these gatherings. This is, this is obviously even before Thanksgiving. It's just um, it's killing people in rapid fire, and on top of it, those are places that don't have uh, the hospitals, the nurses, etc. He he you know he he called to say what do I do, and it was interesting because the calls that I got in the spring around what do I do, it was like close the bars, wear a mask. Now they know all that stuff, and look, there are a couple of bad actors. The governor of South Dakota, the governor of Florida. Um, the two of them are, they're just buffoons to be, just to be um, a little, I know I'm being a little bit impolite, but they are purposely not following guidance that would save people's lives, very simple guidance. But, but for most of the other governors, when they say, what do I do now? It doesn't mean what's the right thing to do. It's how do I talk to people? How do I persuade people who don't see it? How do I have that conversation? And most governors are struggling mightily because they're going at it the same way a lot of us go at it. We, I, we have what, what I refer to as the glare, you know, that look you give to people who aren't wearing a mask. Uh -huh. They're doing like the governor version of the glare by, you know, chiding people and cascading people. And, and they're shocked when it doesn't work. The truth is that it's going to take a different type of approach that's a little bit more nuanced and sophisticated because it's odd to say it this way, but people need to feel listened to. And even though they don't want to be told what to do, they, they want probably some acknowledgement that they have the freedom not to wear a mask and to be heard and not to be castigated and to get this out of the sort of tribal zone. That means, you know, actually having a dialogue. If they don't do that, I think they shouldn't be surprised that they're not making more progress because we're at the point where people, everybody who knows better is doing it. And those next groups are very, very important to try to reach. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I would, I would just add that when I look for rays of hope, one is that we are about to go in, in the third week of January, into an era of consistent messaging, where from the highest levels of the White House all the way through the federal government, we will have clear, consistent scientifically based messaging coming every day and no more of this, you know, rants over tweets and uh, crazy, you know, what about bleach kind of things pouring out from allegedly authoritative figures. And uh, hopefully with time, the consistency of the message will wear down a lot of the resistance. There will always be a core that sees it as a violation of the libertarian right and freedom, you know, to say that they should wear a mask before entering a store. The, the Bill Barr comparing it to, to slavery. To slavery. Or Ted Cruz mocking his colleagues in the Senate. For, uh, Sherrod for Brown for, for wearing a mask when he gave his speech. Hopefully with a, a steady drone of consistent, accurate, 
wise statements, it will start to wear down and we'll begin to have some more rational behavior across the country, certainly less of it being polarized based on your political views. But, you know, we can't be Pollyanna about this. The task ahead for the Biden administration in pulling a significant percentage of America out of their rage is going to be really, really tough. And if I had the ear of the president-elect, I would say to him in no uncertain terms, you have got to build the best, the strongest, the unparalleled communication team, not just in the White House, but inside the CDC, inside FDA, every agency that's engaged in talking to the public about this epidemic needs to have a communications team that's beyond anything you've ever imagined for those agencies before. I think the thing that um, I would emphasize is local. Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? Who do you belong to? Help people see what happens to the hospital down the road, to the people who are at the, you know, down the block and so forth. Uh, And, you know, you you know, people have to hear it in those terms. Those messages will be very, they could be very different in a small town than they are in uh, somewhere else. Uh, and, you know, we, we, Lori's right. There's, there's a way to do this. And there's two things we have going for us. One is that the bully pulpit has been entirely empty. It's been worse than empty. It's been working against us. Mm-hmm. So just filling the bully pulpit, I do believe will help, but then getting very, very local. And, you know, all the science we have tells us that if you want to communicate with people, you, you have to listen to them. Um, you have to test the messages that work with them. It's an effort. It's a scientific effort. Uh, it's not a PR effort. The reason that you have to stay it that way is because until there's a vaccine, our communication is our medicine. How we talk to each other is the best and only medicine we have. And we have to take it that seriously. I love what you're saying. And and I would add a lot of folks, whether they're you know late night talk show hosts and comedians, or they're just average uh, citizens sending around emails are are being very, very, very derisive of their political opponents, saying things like, I, I recently received a group email uh, that went on and on and on about the 73 million Trump voters, that they're all insane, they're all stupid, they're poorly educated, they're buffoons, on and on and on, to which I said, well, then you're never, ever going to have reconciliation in our society because they're saying the same thing about you. They're, they're reading and hearing what you think and saying, what damned communist, socialist, you know, godless um, idiots those folks are. If we can't, as Andy said, listen and try to find some common ground, I do think one source of common ground is old glory. One source of common ground are the founding principles of our nation, putting aside slavery, of course. And if we can begin to connect acts of deferential behavior in a pandemic to patriotism, to citizenship, to just the values of decency that make us Americans, perhaps we'll begin to build some bridges between groups that have been despising and deriding one another. It doesn't help to say they're all stupid, quote unquote, or they're all insane, quote unquote. And how many times have you sat around with friends and heard statements like that? We've got to get past that or we're not going to heal and we're not going to conquer the virus. The virus is exploiting our divisions and taking advantage of them. Well, um, I'll try to send that message myself. Uh, Sometimes by virtue of my training as a satirist, I verge into the derisive. Uh, It's easy to do with Trump, Um, but I try not to do it about his supporters. So, but that's, that's, uh, that's a good message for everybody. I will say this, Al, like what Lori's saying is right, but it also doesn't mean that you can't use humor. If you look at the ads in Italy, uh, there's a new set of ads in Germany which, which are very funny. There are people you know, getting to communicating to people, people like you who are experts at commuting people, pe- to people and making them feel things and see things and hear things in new ways. That's all part of this because beating people over the head is not working. It's not like people don't have the information. 
It's getting people to look at things in a new way. And some of those are sentimental. Some of those are funny, but we should be able to do this. I think humor works. I think you have to, if you just live in fear and fear alone, you're eventually going to break. You can't contain and consistent behavior and consistent messaging because fear paralyzes you. I think, I think the great heroes in our society are people who do comedy. Al, can I just say um, that you're a complete treasure? Uh, <laughs> I mean, people know that because they listen to your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you are a, you are almost um, you're like a you're like a big treasure chest of gold. That's that's kind of the analogy that I use. I don't know if that if you if you could relate to that. Okay, Lori, can you top that? <laughs> well, uh, all all I would say is. Al? Don't don't try. <laughs> <laughs> Just say goodbye. <laughs> Actually, what I'd like to say is thanks, Andy, because you know you did great service in the Obama administration, and um, mo- you're the you're the kind of public citizen that the average person's never heard of, doesn't even know what you do or did, but they would their lives have been directly affected and. I thank you for that. And Al, um, well, I don't know if I can give you quite that, you know, honorific, but um, boy, you sure bring out the laughs. Well, great. Thanks. That's 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 good enough. Um, thanks, guys. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.